Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. All right. Welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Uh, Sydney. I, okay, so I, let me start with the first one. Uh, so I go to see my gynecologist, right? Whoa, and this whoa, guy's... Hey, what, what are you doing? Uh, uh, you, well, you interrupted me. I'll, I'll start from the beginning. So I go to see my gynecologist, and this guy's like... No, wait, wait, wait. What is, what is this thing? What is this, this character? What is this whole... I curiously, um, what is this? Well, you you had said that uh, you had said that this episode there wasn't a wasn't a lot of um, bad medicine that we could make fun of, and B um, there it was about pap smears. So you, yeah. you told me you said I should come up with some pap smear jokes. So well, I just wrote. No, I got a stack here. It the way it is. Uh, like Do they have books of pap? I don't want to know. No, I wrote. I wrote them. These are all. Oh, these are all originals. Original pap smear jokes. But yeah. Um, I don't. I don't think I said make pap smear jokes. I don't. I can't see. Yeah. I can't see me saying that. Yeah. I like, don't think that's right. Yeah, like pap smear. No. You said no. I don't. Did Did I tell you to write bits about pap smear? And pap smear. I got another one. Let me uh, try this one. Um. So, I'm. He's saying. Spread them, and I'm like, no, well, well ooh, no, let's not. Mm, these, no, not no, I can't these. see these okay. going well. I don't see this going well for you. Okay, well, maybe, maybe my pre-written material, maybe it should be more organic. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not the exact kind of humor. I think this, this show, like our whole show, really. Mm-hmm. You know, the merits, like that's not really our style. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's great, it's a great. Style and your jokes after we're done, after we're done with the whole show, recording it and like done putting everything together, like the music on it, and then people listening to it and it's all safe and sound. Then you can tell them to me. Oh, okay. Kind of like, a private, like a private show. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Deal. But for now, let's just, we'll just stick to like the show. Yeah. That's, I guess that's fine. Just go ahead and talk about Pap Smears in like a boring way. Well, uh, thanks. Good. So everybody who's tuned in to listen, Justin promises to be boring. No, I'm that's a great try setup to do, for a podcast. I I'm, can tell you're a professional. I'm going to try to do some great live improvisational humor. Mm-hmm. I'm just not going to be able to do any of my pre-written bits that I came up with. It's fine. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you, James and Esther, for recommending the topic of pap smears. If there is one thing cytopathologists love to, love to talk about, it's pap, pap smears. So, And I do, too. 
Great. Let's well, go for we're it. We're in great company here. I know. <laughs> um, at the turn of the century, uh, the diagnosis of cervical cancer was was pretty devastating. It was pretty it was seen as pretty hopeless. Um, the you know, in in speeches given by by doctors at the time, researchers in this area, uh, they were basically like, We we just don't have we don't have a lot to we don't know how to identify this disease. Uh, it tends to be pretty advanced by the time we diagnose it. And at that point, when at the, of course, at this point in history, we don't have a lot of great treatments for it. Uh, so, you know, basically, we, we, re- we really need a lot of help in this area. Okay. You know. Um, so, enter Dr. George Papanicola. So, he was born in 1883 in Kimmy, Greece. And he was initially not. In, um, what? Kimmy, Greece? Kimmy. Unfortunate. Kimmy, Kimmy? Uh, Kimmy Grease is uh, was also <laughs> my gorgeous lady's wrestling name uh, that I used. Uh, I was a, a champ a couple years running. You were a champ. Yeah, I was the champ of, of Glow. Were you like a bad? Were you like a, a like one of the bad ones? I was a like heel, one of yeah. the... I was a heel, and then I had a face turn that, uh, and I turned good. I don't know what that means, but okay. okay. Uh, so initially, he, uh, Doctor Doctor George, was initially interested in music and the humanities, um, influenced heavily by, by, I think his mom was into was into music, and uh, and he really wanted to explore that, but his physician father convinced him to follow in his footsteps instead. And uh, after uh, completing university, he went on to medical school mm-hmm. because his dad was a physician in his hometown, and he kind of wanted his son to come home and. After, after his training and inherit, like, the family business. Family business, so okay. Yeah, yeah sure. exactly. Uh, so he finished in 1904. Initially, he also uh, joined the military, and he worked as an assistant surgeon. And then he also spent some time working in between, I guess, uh, assignments back back in his hometown, uh, probably with his dad, um, with the local population of patients that had leprosy. So he, he did a lot with that population and helping to improve living conditions and sanitation and that kind of stuff. Hmm, okay. Um. But he got bored of this after a while of like clinical medicine. He always kind of suspected that seeing patients wasn't his calling. Okay. That he he didn't want to spend time kind of doing what I do, talking to people and seeing them in the office and diagnosing that kind of thing. He Just, wanted an adventure. Yeah, he kind of did want adventure. He liked okay. sailing. He liked being out on the sea. And he also liked, well, and I don't know if you consider this adventure. He also liked uh, bench work was what we would call it, uh, meaning like a laboratory scientist. Sitting oh. at a bench and looking at things under microscopes. When you say, when you say bench work in your day to day life, is it? You can be honest with me here. Is it, uh, it with a derogatory tone, like no like office jockeys, no. like <laughs> that kind of like a desk jockey? Not right? at all. No, it's it. It is not. You cannot think of them in Stuck a hierarchy. In the bench, Johnson, no. get back on the bench. <laughs> you can't handle the scalpel. They are. They are too. It is. It, they are areas in science where paths diverge. And there are people who clearly like doing like laboratory research, bench work, that kind of scientific research. And then people like myself who clearly wanted to pursue science in order to do clinical medicine, interact with people and do that, that end of it. And it's just what you love. It just depends on what you love. Oh, or what you hate, which is the other group, whichever one you didn't no, do, you that's who you hate. hate. <laughs> you don't hate the other group, but you might hate. The work that the other group has to do and never want to do it yourself. Right. You're happy that there are people to do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, I'm very happy. Um, so he he wanted to pursue a little bit more of a, a research path. So he actually went to Munich and studied zo- zoology. Mm-hmm. And he got a PhD there. 
Um, and he actually, he also, after that, worked in Monaco for a time. He joined the oceanographic exploration team that the Prince of Monaco led. Do you remember this team from our anaphylaxis episode? Yes, they had a stamp, right? They did. The, the team that discovered anaphylaxis that the Prince of Monaco took out on a on a science cruise. That's a fun science cruise for the whole family. Yeah, that was back in like 1901. One, I, I think Dr. Uh, Papa Nicola went on one of the cruises, the science cruises in 1911, uh, went along in like a physiology type role. Um, so he also he also worked with Prince Monaco. And during all of these travels, he ran into actually, I think on a boat when he was traveling back and forth somewhere, he ran into a woman named Mary who he had known when he was younger and their families had kind of been friendly and then he got to see her again and they started talking and they fell madly in love and he got married and she would become his wife and it, and also plays a very important role in this story. Uh, so uh, the first Balkan War happens and Dr. Papa Nicola has to kind of go back to his military role at this point, kind of abandon all of his, all of the scientific pursuits and okay. go back to actually being a doctor. And while he is in the military, while he is actively in the military, he starts interacting with people who are from and have been to the United States. And they start telling him about all of the job opportunities in scientific research and medicine and, and those kinds of careers that, that are available in the United States. And he's excited and intrigued and wants to pursue that. So in October of 1913, uh, this young couple head to New York City. Uh, it's pretty much the most American place you could go. You're going to go to America. It's yes. always it's always struck me as odd that they like if you're uh, for a lot of people who are coming to America that like you come into New York City. It's sort of like the most trial by fire sort of like <laughs> you know what I mean like. Oh, you want to see America and you're looking for a different culture? Well, check this out. Fire hose. Like I know it's almost full, like full of culture. It's almost like that you get this impression that like if you can make it there, okay, you could make it, I mean, anywhere. I can't believe you've done this. <laughs> so anyway, they, they head through Ellis Island. Uh, they head to New York. Neither of them speak any English, by the way. Uh, and they, it, it costs at this point in time about 250 bucks to enter the U.S. Mm -hmm. They have like a couple bucks over that. Wow. I mean, they have just enough to get in. And then they've got to try to to make it work and, and pursue their dreams. So initially, both Mary and George uh, get jobs at Gimbel's department store. Oh. Uh, Mary is working as a seamstress, and George works as a rug salesman for one day. <laughs> it just doesn't work out? It, it just doesn't. I, I'm not exactly sure. I did read one account, but I never saw this repeated, that he he, on his first day of work, he had to sell a rug to a woman who he had seen in like the first class cabin on the boat on his way over. And it mm -hmm. was embarrassing for him and he just couldn't do it. And so he just left. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, he, he didn't work out as a rug salesman. He had a couple other odd jobs. He played violin in a restaurant. He worked as a clerk at a newspaper, um, but he finally landed a job at New York University's pathology department and soon thereafter also at the anatomy department at the C Cornell University Medical College. Now, when he got this job, which is exactly the area that he was wanting to work in, right. uh, Mary actually quit her job at Gimbel's and came along as a uh, as a technician in his lab. Oh, did she? Ha oh, that's cool. And she would work alongside him in his lab for the rest of his career, helping him out and, and becoming a technician. Probably would have been one of the earliest uh, female 
you know, uh, lab technicians, research assistant, that kind of thing in the role that she plays, uh, but she was never paid. She just oh. helped. And so I don't know that she ever gets that title because she didn't technically have a job. She was you know? more of an amateur. Yeah. She was like a, <laughs> she did it for fun. Her, it for her fun. hobby for kicks. Her right. hobby yeah, was cytopathology. Yeah. <laughs> it's everybody side just for laugh. Everybody's, everybody's got to have their yeah. thing. So initially his research focused mainly on guinea pig reproductive cycles. Nice. I mean, of course, right? Nice. Like, that's what everybody would want to go into. You know first. what I'm into? You know my thing. <laughs> the only problem was as he was as he was doing his research, and and let me let me preface this part of the story right now. Uh, he is researching guinea pigs. He is doing research on guinea pigs, and I'm about to talk about some aspects of scientific research involving animals that may be unpleasant for some listeners. Okay, so I'd like to preface with that if that's the kind of thing you don't want to have to hear you may want to skip ahead sure i don't know 30 seconds to a minute <laughs> it depends on how deep we go like you're you really <laughs> yeah. into it i don't know so the problem is that he needs to harvest ovaries from the guinea pigs at a specific moment in their cycle in order to understand more about the guinea pig reproductive cycle and that involves some guesswork because he didn't know exactly where the guinea pigs were in their menstrual cycles so, uh, and, and so that would result in sometimes he would guess wrong and he would sacrifice a guinea pig to remove the ovaries and he, and it was wrong. And then that was, you know, that's sad. That, that's sad. Right. So it occurred to him that just like menstruating members of other species, guinea pigs have cycles and probably vaginal secretions that change with their cycles. Menstruating humans have vaginal secretions that change as their cycles change. Okay. We've talked about this before, that like the, the viscosity, the thinness or thickness of the vaginal fluid can help you tell, you know, if somebody is ovulating or, sure. or you know, what, what stage they are mm -hmm. when you're looking for like fertility and trying to get pregnant and that kind their of thing. Their fortune is. And exactly. Right. <laughs> what kind of, what, what uh, zodiac sign they would match they kickboxing. best There's, with. You there's know. really nothing you can't tell. <laughs> It's like <laughs> a snowflake. Uh, everyone's different. <laughs> Vaginal fluid. It's, it's amazing. Um, so he thought if you can do this with humans, you could probably figure this out with guinea pigs as well. So he started, he, he actually went out and bought a tiny little nasal speculum. So like a little teeny device used to look up the, it was actually a pediatric one. So look, look, used to look up tiny little nostrils just to kind of hold the nostrils open and look up there. He got a tiny little nasal speculum and started using it to examine guinea pigs and collect their vaginal secretions mm -hmm. pretty i mean i've had weirder days but not many <laughs> so he starts collecting the vaginal secretions of guinea pigs and examining them on microscope slides and as he notices differences in the fluid over time and the cellularity and different aspects of the vaginal secretion he can actually perfectly predict the guinea pigs cycles that's why he started this research. Yeah. That's why he started preparing these, what we would call smears, where he would take a sample of fluid and smear it on a slide and then look at it. He started doing that so that he could try to predict exactly when a guinea pig was ovulating. Right? Right. You follow? And still, the world, the world held its breath. Certainly, <laughs> he's going to figure it out soon. We've <laughs> just got to know. So from this, and he published papers on this and he was very successful, but from it, he began to wonder 
what else we could learn from vaginal secretions, particularly the if future. we, <laughs> particularly in in the human animal. What can we learn from vaginal secretions? So he started collecting vaginal secretions from volunteers, uh, for his, from from human volunteers for his laboratory, and examining them on slides. Just to look at the different points in the cycle, what does it look like, and that kind of thing. In the midst of this, he happened to collect a sample from a patient who who had known, who had diagnosed cervical cancer, and he noticed a very clear difference in the cells that he saw on the slide from the patient with cervical cancer than he had seen on the slides from patients who didn't have cervical cancer. Oh. And this is the beginning of a huge breakthrough. I know it I know you're wondering where I've been going with these guinea pig vaginal secretions. Well, <laughs> I'm about to tell you. Oh, tell me. Well, first I'm going to take you to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? pre-prepared all i got in two minutes i'm eating filet mignon that sounds delicious yeah it sounds delicious and you can give these a try and it's not just these meals we're talking pancakes smoothies they got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious and the meals you just eat and eat there's no prepping cooking or cleanup get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week you're going to get exactly what you want no surprises here 
Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. So Sid, you were, uh, you had me in suspense about what he did with the information that these cells from uh, the vaginal fluids in the woman that had been diagnosed with cervical cancer were different. Right. Now, before I, before I tell you the, before I tell you what, what happens next in the story, I I do think it's important to mention another doctor. Uh, Dr. Papanicola was not the only doctor to call attention to the fact that you can tell the difference between cancer and non-cancer cells with a technique like this, you know, collecting some, some sort of secretion or fluid and looking at the cells uh, and being able to tell the difference, you know, that he was not the the first or the only physician to figure this out. There was a British physician, Walter Hale Walsh, who had already done it with lung cancer. Um, and then there was a Romanian physician, uh, Aurel Babish, mm-hmm. who had actually used a different method to diagnose cervical cancer. So he was actually using, looking at the same thing. Uh, he just used a slightly different instrument and his preparation was different. And it, it's crazy, both him and Dr. Papanicola published and presented their results, mm-hmm. I mean, within months of each other. Wow, really? But we are talking about one physician who's practicing in the United States and one, one physician who is practicing in uh, Romania. We have no evidence that the two knew about each other at all. Um, uh, so this was just one of those moments in scientific history when two smart people probably came up with a very similar solution at a very similar moment in time. Um, it, it's a, um, it's a term for it. Um, multiple discovery happens mm-hmm. pretty commonly. Actually, it's, it's a very odd phenomenon because it, I, it, you subscribe to the theory that ideas uh, arise through like fluid networks. So, mm-hmm. There, it's not just one person who's coming up with it independently. It's these ideas coming together and someone is the person that, sure. you know, sort of identifies it. It's really fascinating. It's Which, more common than you'd think. It makes sense. It makes sense because at this point in history, uh, the standard for diagnosing cancer was some sort of tissue biopsy. So it was actually, at the time, we didn't have a lot of non-invasive techniques to do that, meaning we'd actually have to cut somebody open and take a sample of something to figure out if there was cancer or not. And that procedure alone was dangerous. So mm-hmm. the people were looking for a safer, you know, easier way, less invasive to diagnose cancer sooner, you know, more quickly so that we could do something about it. So the two of them came up with very similar techniques. Uh, Dr. Papanicola is the one who we will, as we move forward, we will discover gets most of the credit for it and is most associated with the procedure. But to be fair, the test we're about to talk about in Romania is actually called the Babish Papanicola test huh. in honor of, of this physician who also, who also figured out something very similar. So anyway, uh, Dr. Papanicola collects more samples, standardizes his procedure, and publishes in 1928. Okay. Uh, here are my results. Here's some pictures of some cells with cancer. Here's some pictures of some cells that didn't have cancer. I, I did all this just with a simple vaginal you know, smear, I got, I got some fluid, I smeared it on a slide. It was all very easy. And I was able to, to die to, you know, this would be a way to diagnose cervical cancer. Isn't this great? The world rejoiced. No, no. nobody was particularly interested. Oh, everybody said, well, that's, that's all well and good, but you still got to get a biopsy. You still got to go in and get a biopsy. So 
It didn't really make a lot of waves. He went and presented his findings actually at what was called the Race Betterment Conference uh, in Battle Creek to a bunch of uh, eugenicists. Ooh. Yeah. Very common at the time. Yeah. Still yucky. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's not, it, I, it's important to know that there was a, at this period, there was a, before we, we kind of saw, oh, that really broke bad over there. Like that really did not work out well over in Europe. There um, was, there's yeah. a lot, it was a common school mm -hmm. of, a racist one, but <laughs> a very, no, a very racist one. It's it's always hard when I, I, I had told Justin this before I, we did this episode, whenever I'm studying a physician or a, something that is said in this time period in the U S mm -hmm. I always get really nervous. Well, not just in the U S and a lot of places, but, uh, because this is the moment when there, there was a, a eugenics movement in this country. And I'm always terrified that I'm going to find out that this person I'm researching that they were involved or they were part of it. And then I, I, it's awful. And I mean, we've talked about Dr. Kellogg and we mentioned that he was related to, I mean, he was part of the eugenics movement. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't terrible. mention that it was common to like soften the fact that no, it's just like, I, it, no, this is just this moment in case you didn't know no, there yeah. was eugenics movement in this country. Yeah, it was popping off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a, but, it's important to remember it and recognize it so that it, we stop it from happening. As near again. as we can tell, because you talked to me about this before. As near as we can tell, though, this is as involved with eugenics as he got. He was exactly. his boss at the time, I guess, was was uh, deep in the field and convinced him to come present there. Yes, but, yes. As far as we can tell, this is the only interactions he'd had. I have no evidence that says Doctor Papanicola had anything to do personally with eugenics. Had any? You know, I, I don't. I don't find anything that says that. So he he presented it, and they weren't even particularly interested in it either. He kind of said, "Look at this cool technique I've got. It's great. We should use it." And they said, "Well, no, we're really into a lot, a lot more awful stuff." Yeah. And th this seems like a great thing for mankind, and that's not really. It's not really our bag. That's not really where we're at right now. Yeah. We're gonna stick with Kellogg and his yogurt enemas, mm -hmm. and we're good. If you come up with anything about race purity, please yeah. just give. You back can call touch. us back. Uh, open door. I can imagine him like backing out of the room, like slowly, and then turning around and be like, "Oh, oh, what was that?" And then, like taking off. <laughs> so none of this deterred him. This is this is one thing you got to know about this guy. He was nonstop. He worked seven days a week, and according to most sources I read, never took a vacation in his entire career. There was one that said he actually did take one vacation. <laughs> Either way, this guy worked seven days a week his entire life. Wow. He was, and not because he had to. He said the work was too interesting to leave it. He couldn't stand the thought of not working on it. He had to keep working. He loved it. Kindred spirit. He, he absolutely loved it. That's me, yeah. That's you? Mm-hmm. Never taken a vacation? No. I just mm -hmm. don't believe in it. I'm a yeah. workhorse. And right. Love my craft. Uh, so his wife, his wife stuck with him. Uh, like I said, she worked in the lab with him. She was I mean, a at technician. this point, it seems like the only way to see him, right? That's true. If you wanna, well, if you want to hang out with your boy, he's at, uh, he's at the office again. Not only that, there were times early in his research when he referred to a special case that he studied, a special case that he studied for 21 years and collected vaginal secretions from and learned a lot from. Very intimate. It's it's now pretty much thought that that's his wife that he. So not only did she volunteer to help him out with with the actual lab techniques, but she was also one of his uh, one of his samples. Yeah. So 
Uh, either way, he continued to work and collect data, and he started collaborating with a Dr. Herbert Trout, uh, who was uh, worked in the gynecology department at uh, at New York Hospital and was actually able to have contact with more patients. And through the two of them working together, they began to basically do a pap test on every patient with a cervix who came into the hospital. Mm. So just collect tons and tons of samples. Uh, and then in 1943, they gave it another go. So together they published diagnosis of uterine cancer by vaginal smear. And it just, I guess it was the right moment in history at this point. Plus they had a lot, the data was a lot more robust. They had a lot more samples. Sure. Right. Uh, and they published this paper and everybody went nuts. Because here was this quick, easy, cheap, and pretty reliable test to diagnose cervical cancer. Nice. And the medical community embraced it. He was a little nervous about that at first, actually, only because, uh, not because he didn't want people to use it, but he didn't want people to do it wrong. Mm. He was a little nervous about widespread use because he was afraid that people would start complaining it didn't work because they weren't doing it right. Right. He, he strikes me as the kind of guy who probably wouldn't have minded like going around and teaching everybody independently. Like, listen, if you're going to do this, I've got the time, <laughs> just do it right. Okay. I'm on vacation. <laughs> it's going to have my name on it. So Dr. Pap, as he, as he came to be called after this, so the, the, the test, the, um, Papa Nicola test or Papa Nicola smear quickly became known as just the pap test or the yeah. pap smear. Uh, and and because of that, he became known as Dr. Pap. Actually kind of went backward. <laughs> wonder if that, that didn't really happen to Anglo-Saxon names very often, does it? No. Uh -uh. You know, it really does. It seems like people just go ahead and say the whole. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's fun. So Dr. Pap, as he came to be called by most of his uh, colleagues and students and such, went on to become a professor emeritus at Cornell University Medical Co College. He published four books, over 100 articles. He got tons of awards in the U.S. and Greece and Italy, honorary degrees. He was on the 10,000 drachma note before the, before the Euro. Right. Um, and he was on several Greek stamps and a U.S. stamp. He is also known as the father of exfoliative cytology. That's not exactly true off the tongue. Which, you know, I mean, if there is a greater honor than that, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, he left Cornell for Miami to help them develop their cancer institute in 1961. He had kept promising he was going to retire, promising he was going to retire, and he just never could because he loved the work so much. And he finally said, you know what, at least we'll move to Miami and I'll kind of work as a consultant and advisor and develop this. And unfortunately, he passed away three months after arriving there at the age of 78. They still did name the Miami Can Cancer Institute, the Papa Nicola Cancer Research Institute in his oh, nice. name. Um, and this is part of why you'd think this you'd think this guy would have a Nobel for this. He was considered and he was passed up initially. They were still considering him for it the next year. Uh, but there was this debate about who came up with the test right, they first. Wanna. Was it Papa Nicola or was it Bobish? And there were not that this, not that they had decided not to give it to him, but because there was some discussion and debate and they weren't sure they were holding off and then mm. he passed away. So then he couldn't get then, one. And then the other guy was like, well, I mean, I'm still here. I'm still here. Do you want to <laughs> go ahead and prize me, please? I'm still ready. I actually have no idea if he was still there at the time. Yeah, or not. Not I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. So the let's talk about the pap smear. It's reduced mortality from cervical cancer in the U.S. by 70 percent since <sighs> the 1940s. Wow. Uh, do you just briefly do you know what a pap smear is, Justin? 
Well, you go to a person with a cervix and you put a, I'm just going to say what I think it is. Are you, would you rather me tell you? No, nah, you okay. ask me. Okay. You ask me. No, carry on. You get a cotton swab. And no. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not great. All right. So you get a cotton swab or a sca- scapulum. Get a scrupulum and you put it in there. And then you smear it on a slide and you put a cover slip on there. And you first you put on some dye to some, to dye, some uh, contrast dye to right. help it show up. And then you put the top on the slide and you put it under your microscope. Focus, please, and get the right magnification. Then check and then, it out. Check out okay. the cells. So, I mean, there's some clo- You're close. I mean, even some people I think who've had pap smears aren't always sure what exactly is happening. Well, you know, I, I always try to talk through it as I'm telling people, you know, here's what here's what's happening. But uh, basically what we do is we take either uh, what looks like a little spatula, like a little wooden kind of spatula thing or like a little we call a little broom, little uh, rubbery plastic soft broom kind of thing. And we use it. We have to use a speculum so that we can visualize we can see the cervix, which is just the bottom part of the uterus. And we use that to brush it in the center of the cervix where the opening is called the os and collect some of those cells. That's all we're trying to do is just use that to collect some of those cells. We put it in a little, now we use like a liquid prep for the most part. They used to just take that and smear it on a slide. Mm. Now we actually like rub it around in a little um, bottle of liquid, Mm. wash it around in there, get some of the cells in there. They take that. There's a, there's a whole preparation that they do with it now. It's, it's a little more complicated than it used to be. One way or another, it ends up smeared on a slide and examined again. Got it. So uh, the, the, the reason that this test is so great, of course, again, is because we can identify precancerous cells as well as cancer cells. So we can even tell when somebody might be likely to develop cervical cancer. At some point. Yes, yeah. which is great. Um, among patients that do die of cervical cancer each year, it's it, – about half of them never got a pap smear, which is just, I only mentioned this to prove that getting pap smears is very effective. Sure. Um, and about 10% more were at least five years out of date on when they needed their pap smear. So again, not just getting them, but getting them when you're supposed to is very important. Uh, we used to do paps yearly on everybody. That This was a thing that changed pretty for, pretty recently in medical I history. Actually, yeah. yeah, we used to do them uh, at age 21 or three years after you start having sex. And then yearly thereafter. Now we start them at 21 and we do them less frequently. It depends then on your age and your risk factors and whether or not you've ever had abnormal ones. So I don't want to give you a, a hard cutoff, but some patients could be only every three years. Okay. Um, so we do them less often because we found that we were doing them too much and we were doing too many procedures and maybe we didn't need to do them that often. Either way, it's important that if you have a cervix, you are seeing your physician, asking them when you need a pap smear and getting them in the recommended time intervals because we know that it saves lives. Um, there are all kinds of interesting things when it comes to cytopathology. Like, uh, do you know pathologists can only read so many slides in a day, like legally? Really? They're prohibited from reading more. Why? It's a it's a quality control measure. Oh, okay, because they, they don't want them rushing exactly. to get through. Yeah, oh, but there's, there's actually like... I guess a lot of political stuff tied up in this because now it's a semi-automated procedure, so it's not as hard to do, but there's still these limits. And I don't know. I was I was told in some of these emails that there's a lot of political stuff. I, I don't know what it is, though. It's yeah. not my world. Yeah. I don't know. Um, now, just on a side note, we also have the Gardasil vaccine. I wanted to mention that just to give it a quick plug. 
Yeah. The Gardasil vaccine is a vaccine that can prevent uh, some strains of human papilloma virus, which is the virus that causes most cervical cancer, not all, mm. but most. HPV. Exactly, HPV. So it was the first vaccine developed that can prevent that can prevent cancer. It doesn't prevent all, but it can prevent cancer. Uh, it is a great vaccine. I unequivocally throw my support behind it. Uh, it absolutely is something that I believe all all people should get. We now give it to younger people. Around age 11, we start recommending it. It's a series of three vaccines. And uh, hopefully we will see a time where while we still do pap tests, we find a lot less cancer when we do them. Thank you to the Gardasil vaccine. That being said, a lot of us were too old to get it, which sure. is why pap tests are still important. I, w I am too old to have gotten it. Uh, not only that, the vaccine is still not 100% effective in that it can't cover every single strain of the virus. And there are people who aren't infected with the virus who can get cervical cancer. So it's still important to get your pap tests. Um, there are other new tests for cervical cancer, but the pap test is still winning out as one that's, you know, like I said, cheap and easy and quick and uncomfortable, mm -hmm. but not, not painful, uncomfortable, mm -hmm. but not painful. Um, and we're improving our methods every day. So, and they're pretty inexpensive and easy mm -hmm. to get right now. Right, Sid? Well, Justin, they should be. Uh, it, if you have insurance, usually your insurance should pay for you to get screening pap smears at the regularly recommended intervals, whatever that may be for your age group and risk factors and whatnot. So every one to three years. Obviously, there are places where you can get it for free if you don't have insurance places like the health department here. Actually, a lot of I know a lot of patients who go to the health department because they provide free uh, cervical cancer screening and Planned Parenthood provides cervical cancer screening. Um, it's essential that those uh, places continue to survive and provide the service to continue to save, I mean, 70% reduction in mortality by having widely available PAP tests. So it's essential that these, that these services are available. If your insurance does not cover this, or if you do not have insurance and there are no free services available funded, you know, by charitable organizations or the government to provide it, we're going to start seeing more people die from cervical cancer. I mean, that's the end of the story. It's too expensive for you to just go pay for. Yeah. The doctor's visit alone is going to be crazy expensive. I mean, if it's something you have to pay for out of pocket, then plus the procedure that the doctor's doing, plus the lab fee for having it prepared and read, it would be prohibitively expensive for most people to do out of their own pocket. So it's essential that these services are provided. They save lives, period. And not to stand on the soapbox for too long, but it's pretty cool that dude was able to immigrate here too, right? Hooray! You know, <laughs> I think it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool. Pretty darn cool. I, I think I'm glad to to claim Dr. Papa Nicola as a as a fellow American. Uh, folks, that's going to do it for us. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have had fun. Thank you. Thank you. A million times thank you to everybody that donated to the Maximum Fund Drive. It was a massive success. Sid and I did a really fun video on YouTube. Remember? It was fun. Yeah. yeah. Remember? You're looking at me like, I, like I'm making it up. Oh, we did do a really fun video on YouTube. Okay. I was, I for, yeah, I was just thinking it was live. Sweetie. It was like two hours long. <laughs> well, it was live. Oh, we were pushing it to YouTube, but it's I, archived see, well, I, did, I didn't it. know that. If you search for Sawbones <laughs> live on YouTube, you can watch it and enjoy it. But uh, we talk about pretty much everything out of the sun. 
Uh, and uh, thank you to the taxpayers for letting us use your song Medicines as the intro and outro for our program. Uh, head on over to MaximumFun.org. Hey, here's a plug we don't do very often. If you uh, want to buy wanna, uh, some, some of the Sawbones, whatchamacallit, go to MaxFunStore.com and uh, you'll find a Sawbones t-shirt uh, with our logo and you'll find one designed by Taylor Smurl, Sydney's sister, with a very cool skull and stuff on it, but it's neat. Very cool. It's very cool. There's a ton of Ma- cool Max Fun gear on there for you to pick up. Uh, but anyway, that's going to do it for us, folks. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you all so much. I didn't say thank you right away because I was getting a secret doctor text, but thank you. Sydney has a secret doctor texting system. Did you know this? I did. I do. It says, Doc Halo, secure message. It's very cool. It does. And anyway, I was getting one. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Fun Drive, every, the Max Fun Drive. Thank you, everybody who donated. You guys are great. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. That's going to do it for us, folks. Until next week, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.